And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Um, today we get to hear this uh, joyous story of a woman getting to share with her relative that she's expecting a child. Not just any child, but the Lord, uh, the coming Son of God. Honestly, there's no joy quite like seeing a first-time parent share the news that they're expecting as they're excited for that. You can just see the joy in their eyes. Unless, of course, uh, you were my wife and I, uh, when we first uh, shared the news with everyone that we were expecting our first child. Because it wasn't really joy that you could say was on our face. Our faces more looked like we were watching a Jordan Peele film. Um, where it was like a little bit of a mixture of joy and horror and, that's weird, um, all kind of at the same time. It wasn't that we weren't happy. We were extremely happy that we uh, were expecting our, our first child, who we now lovingly, thankfully know as Kennedy. It's that we weren't quite ready to share it with all the people that we did get to share it with. Because Megan was only about six weeks pregnant. We had just found out. And uh, my, my friend, I was pastoring at City on a Hill, Brookline. My friend Mike uh, was also pastoring with, with me there. And I'd share, Mike's one of my best friends, so I shared with Mike uh, that Megan was expecting. There was a lot of excitement and anticipation. But if, in case you don't know, most couples don't share this news with everyone until like after the first trimester, okay? So that's like 12, 13 weeks. Well, that week, Mike was preaching, and um, Mike was just kind of explaining something. He was telling a story about me and Megan, and it, I mean, if you know Mike, he was like, uh, talking about something, he's like, yeah, and, and Megan, you know, she didn't want to eat what we were eating because, you know, she's expecting, and everybody's like, Whoa! <laughs> like, I, I don't know if this actually happened, but I remember an audible gasp from 
the crowd and just like the sound of like chiropractors like cashing in from all the, the necks that were, what? I like, I can specifically remember the look on several people's faces. We're like, how could you not tell me? She's like, well, I wasn't ready to tell anyone. It ended up being joyful, but it wasn't right at the beginning. I suspect that's somewhat like how Mary feels. Uh, Mary just had this, this angel show up and say, guess what? You're the one. You're going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and carry the Son of God. I'm sure she eventually felt joy, but there was probably a lot of mixed feelings that went into that. But the angel is wise and tells Mary immediately Go to your relative, Elizabeth. So that's where we pick up this story today. Verse 39, In those days Mary went and with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now it says that she's going in haste. Why is she going in such haste? Well, the angel told her to. And when an angel tells you to go, you don't go slowly. All right, You go in haste. Also, the angel just dropped some big news on her. This is what the angel said. An angel appeared to her, and, she sa- and he said this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive... Now, just imagine, this is, this is quite the news. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will ca- call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High... And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. That's a lot to digest. It's a bit intense. And so when he said, go talk to Elizabeth, I'm sure Mary was like, oh, I'll go talk to her. I've got a lot to share. I've got a lot to share. I want to talk to Elizabeth. A lot to process here. Now, who are Zechariah and Elizabeth? Actually, Luke is kind of interesting. Uh, the book, of, the Gospel of Luke, it's a, a, an account of the life of Christ. Um, and usually when you read a biography, I've read a few, not that many, but a few. I've started more than what I've read. And um, so I know how biographies start. And they usually start with someone's parents. But the Gospel of Luke does not start with Jesus' parents. It chooses instead to start with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are, Elizabeth is a relative of Mary. Zechariah is a priest, kind of like an ancient pastor. He worked in the temple. He took care of things. And an angel appears to Zechariah and says, behold, your wife is going to conceive. And he says, how is that possible for I'm old? We've heard this story before. We're about to get to it in Genesis. And he says, well, it's going to happen. And this child is going to be a forerunner for the Christ, for the Messiah. He'll be a prophet. And then before the angel leaves, Zechariah closes, uh, the angel closes Zechariah's mouth so he's completely mute for this time. So as Mary is going to uh, Elizabeth, what a convenience here. She doesn't have to worry about any interruptions. Zechariah's not got much to say these days. There'll be no mansplaining in this home. Um, so here we have two women, both of whom have miraculously conceived. Mar- uh, Elizabeth in her old age, through natural means, Mary, supernaturally, through the Holy Spirit and her virginity and her youth. Elizabeth is quite older than Mary, and Elizabeth is socially superior to Mary in every way. 
She's the wife of a priest. Mary's not even married. Elizabeth is older, honored, revered. uh, Mary is young, unwed, pregnant, and poor. Elizabeth is her superior in every way. Elizabeth lives in a place close enough to the temple for her husband to work as a priest. Mary lives in a podunk town out in the backwoods. Yet what happens when Mary walks in? What should happen is Elizabeth should get to share the news with Mary and have Mary rejoice because this is a position of honor that she's been given. Now she finally gets to have a child that she's longed for for all of her life. She's finally pregnant. But instead what happens when Mary walks in, verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Before Mary gets to say a single word, Elizabeth knows. And how does she know? But the Holy Spirit has revealed it to her. Just as the Holy Spirit promised her husband Zechariah in the temple when, when the angel appeared and said, your son will be a prophet even from the time he's in his mother's womb. Here we see the son of Elizabeth leaping for joy in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth rejoicing with Mary instead of the other way around. Mary doesn't even get to share what's happening before she jumps onto it. I would suspect it would be easy for Elizabeth to feel slighted, finally pregnant after all these years, and here my cousin from the boondocks is here to ruin it all. This should be my time. But instead, she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's what she says to Mary. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's amazing. Elizabeth, superior in every way in a social setting, says, why is it that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? She's she's turned upside down. And here we learn why the angel sent Mary to Elizabeth. Mary had all the information that she needed from the angel. The angel came and told her everything that she needed to say. But it wasn't until she talked to Elizabeth where everything comes together. This seems to be the moment where it clicks for Mary. Up until this moment, I'm sure Mary was in her own head like, was I delusional? Was, that, was I crazy? I'm not even feeling sick yet. I'm sure she's doubting herself. Like, did an angel actually come and say those things to me? Those things are different. I'm not sure how to feel about this. But once Elizabeth confirmed what the angel had said to her, she realized it was all true. And Mary bursts with joy, and she lets out what we might know as the first Christmas carol now, as she sings the praises of God. And her soul rejoices. Before we move on to look at her song, I find this to be quite profound. That the angel told her everything that she needed, but it wasn't until a friend spoke a kind word, spoke a word of affirmation to her, that it sank into her heart. 
Friends, God can use your words more powerfully than an angel's. Many times, the Lord gives people words to speak of encouragement, of confrontation, of love, of peace, of joy to another human that can change them and help them deeply and profoundly. Think on all the times the Lord has sent someone with a word for you. You might not have thought about it that way, but sometimes the Lord sends someone with a word for you. And you might not even know at that moment, that, and they might not know that the Lord was sent them with that word. But yet the Lord uses the words of community to convict and to comfort the Lord might be giving you this morning. Who in your life needs to hear a word of encouragement from the Lord? Who needs to hear something? Because they might know it. And you might say, I don't want to tell them that. They already know that. Mary knew she was pregnant with Jesus. But yet Elizabeth still said it. And it was in that moment that it became more real for her. So real that she started to sing praises to the Lord. Who you need to share that with. You can even take a look around the room. We're all gathered here this morning. This is why, one reason why we gather. That as we come together, we encourage one another. We help them. As these, sang, as these words sank into Mary's heart, she started singing. Up until this moment, Mary has two lines of dialogue in the whole book of Luke. But now she's about to make up for lost time. She has this song, this song that we call the Magnificat. And uh, if we were in an Anglican church or a Catholic church, I would be singing Latin up here. But English is a struggle enough as it is. And um, that's, that's not what we're going to do. But the Magnificat, the reason why it's called that traditionally, if you grew up on those traditions, is because the Latin starts, that's, that's the beginning of the song, Magnificat. Um, and Mary, Mary's song is just beautiful. It's dripping with Old Testament references. I mean, it's just dripping with them. When you look at the song and you try to find all the different Old Testament references, I was going to start explaining them to you, but then the sermon got way too long. Um, it's, a lot of it's based off of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel when Hannah was given a, a child by the Lord. Not through the Mary way, but through the Elizabeth way in her older age. And she, she dedicates her child, gives her child to the Lord. But she also draws from many of the Psalms. She's drawing from Psalm 72. She's drawing from Psalm 103. She's drawing from Psalm 107. Mary is like a jazz musician sampling the greats. If you show up to a jazz bar and, and you hear a, a, a musician that knows what they're doing, you might, and you know a little bit of jazz, you might be like, oh, he's got a little Coltrane in there. I hear a little Thelonious Monk. And that's what Mary's doing, but with the scriptures. Okay, so she's got, she's got a little bit of David. She's got a little bit of Hannah. She's just, she's just riffing off of it all because she's a woman of the word, obviously. She's a woman who's been in the word. She knows her scriptures, and the scriptures give words to her prayers. You might look at a prayer like Mary's and say, I could never pray anything like that because it's magnificent. Um, but the reality is, that's true unless you learn the language of Scripture. 
God has given us his scripture so that we might know his love for us, so that we might know his word, so that we might be able to talk with him. Mary is fluent in this. She's deep in the scripture. And out of the abundance of her heart, her love for the Lord, the mouth speaks. She's able to sing such a rich, beautiful song of joy like this one because she's been immersed in the scripture since childhood. She has a big pool of praise to draw from, to sing to God. It's just like learning another language, my friends. If you want to learn how to praise the Lord, you have to be in the Word. You have to be praising the Lord. You have to be immersed in the things of God. Many of you here this, this morning, um, you're, because we're in Boston, a lot of the stereotypes about Americans aren't true. Many of you are bilingual, trilingual. We've got a few polygots in the, in the area. And you know that you cannot really properly learn a language unless you're immersed in that language. Me, I've tried a few times. I've, I've, I, a couple years ago, I decided I was going to learn Spanish. And so what did I do? I, um, I pulled up the App Store, and I downloaded Duolingo, and I went after it. For a good little while, I had quite a streak, like 200 days. But guess what? Five minutes a day on an app is not enough to teach you Spanish. And how much Spanish do I know now? None. I don't know anything. Like, como estas? I don't know. Is that how I say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm bad at it. If you want to truly learn a language, you have to be immersed in the language. A couple of days ago, I was picking up my youngest son, who's in childcare full-time, and um, he, his, his, the owner of the childcare, own, the owner of the daycare, owns, is Brazilian, and she like grew up in Brazil. Her English is perfect, though. So I don't know what I was thinking. Her kids were there one day. I was like, hey, your kids speak Portuguese, right? And she was like, yeah. So does your child. Um, I was like, what? <laughs> I had no clue. She was like, yeah, Portuguese is good. Um, because he lives in it. Five days a week, he's learning Portuguese in his daycare. Because he's immersed in it. Friends, many of us wonder why our prayer lives stink when we treat our prayer lives and our relationship with the Lord like a five-minute Duolingo session, instead of being immersed in the Word. We have to be immersed in the Word of God. We cannot simply do our five-minute session and assume that that's good for our souls. We have to listen to the Word. We have to read it, memorizing it. Come on, if you're bilingual, trilingual, you can memorize you can memorize a little bit so that you can use it, so that you can use it in your prayers, so that it can guide you, be a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. Let's look at her song. The song that we know as a magnificent starts with this, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, the Savior. Our, is a soul and a spirit two different things? I think that we have to talk about that for a second. 
because uh, she says, my soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices. Is she talking about two different things? I don't think so. I think this is what you might call semantic parallelism, where she's saying the same thing twice. Uh, she's saying, my soul rejoices, my soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices. And just very briefly, we believe that there are only two parts to a human being. There's your body and there's your soul slash spirit, whichever, whatever you want. They're synonyms in, in this way. And your brain is your body, but your mind is your soul. Your heart is your body, but your emotions are your soul. And that is the biblical understanding of who a human is. And that the two of them made up together are you. But your soul and your spirit aren't two separate things. Mary is simply trying to add some emphasis. She's trying to say the same thing. More than once, what she's trying to say is that my innermost being is rejoicing. My innermost being is delighted at who God is and what he has done. The central aspect of who I am is rejoicing in the Lord. As she continues, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. How do you, how do you magnify a being that is infinite? Have you ever thought about this? That if you're infinitely large, by definition, you cannot be magnified. You cannot be made larger. But what she's saying is that I want to make the Lord larger in my life. I want to magnify him, glorify him, bring him glory, bring him magnification. And that doesn't mean that you actually make him more glorious, but it means that you praise him for the glory in which he has, that you magnify him. I can't make my wife any more beautiful, but I can praise her for her beauty. This is what he's saying. He's saying, I am, she is saying, I am magnifying the Lord. I am magnifying him. I am glorifying him. It's not that you make him more glorious, but you praise him for his glory. This is what the Christian life is all about, magnifying the Lord. My New Testament professor in seminary was a guy named Tom Schreiner. He's a leading scholar in New Testament studies, and he actually wrote a book called New Testament Theology, Magnifying Christ. This is the whole point of New Testament, that we magnify Christ. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. Magnifying God. Don't miss this. The degree to which you magnify God is directly correlated with the degree to which your soul is allowed to rejoice in the Lord. The more you magnify him, the more you rejoice. Those two are together. The more you magnify God, the more joy you will experience. The first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, what is the chief aim of man? Why are we made? Why are we created? And the answer is, anybody know? Oh, we got one. Okay, thank you. Uh, To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the pastor John Piper says that actually you could change that and to a by. The chief aim, aim of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so here Mary is accomplishing the chief aim of man, the very reason that she was created, she is accomplishing. She is magnifying God, glorifying God, and enjoying him. 
Why is she rejoicing like this? It's not just raw emotion, but she finally understands what is happening. Emotion is a response to understanding. She finally gets it. She knows what's happening. She understands the gospel. Listen, in verse 47, Mary calls God her Savior. She understands what's happening to her, that the child that she is about to deliver will one day deliver her. She's getting the idea of the gospel. In verse 47, she calls, her, calls God her Savior. And this is just a brief aside here. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was sinless, and, and some even call her a, a co-redemptrix. And uh, people who need a Savior, though, aren't perfect. And she knows she's not perfect. She's special. She's blessed, but not perfect. Not a co-redemptrix. Verse 48, she says this, For he has looked on my humble estate, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is the normal response for someone who is getting the gospel. She says, behold, he is looking on my humble estate. Our temptation is oftentimes to not approach God like this, but rather to approach God like, why won't he give me what I want? I know what's best for me. Why won't he give it to me? But Mary instead says, behold, he's looked upon me in my humble estate. I don't know what's best for me, but he knows what's best. And I'm placed in a, and I'm low. I'm not worthy of this, but he's given it to me. She's getting the gospel. She sees that she's a nobody, but God has looked upon her and blessed her. And while this is true of Mary, isn't it true of everyone who meets Jesus? That we're put in a humble estate, that we know that it's not like we can come to Jesus with our act together and telling him that we deserve to get into heaven. No, Jesus only calls the humble. In order to understand the gospel, you have to understand that you're a nobody, that there's no reason for him to love you, but yet he does it anyways. This is the good news. You don't deserve his love and affection, but yet he has given it to you anyways because he loves you. Verse 49, for he who is mighty, her song again, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Has he done great things for you this morning, church? And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary rejoices and exults in God because he has done great things for her, good things. He's given her the special privilege of carrying the creator into his own creation. And she's singing of his mercy that goes on and on forever. And while this is especially true for Mary, is it not true for anyone who has met Jesus? That he is mighty and has done great things for us. What has God done for you? Count your blessings, name them one by one. What has he done? Not just your physical blessings, because many of us are blessed in physical ways. We can count all the ways that God has provided for us. But what has he done in the spiritual realm? Has he given you joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control? Has he allowed you to enjoy the look of the face of the Lord upon you that says, well done, my good and faithful servant? Has he gifted you with his own presence, with that still small voice 
that says, you are mine and I'm yours? Has he given you joy? Friends, this is our only source of joy. Not just the good things that God gives us, but the internal realities of the heart that he gives us. Has he shown you mercy, church? Has he given you more than what you deserve? This is our source of joy as, as, we, as Christians, not our circumstances. Verse 51, Mary continues her song. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's amazing. From the time that she has newly conceived Jesus, Mary divinely somehow knows what the ministry of Jesus is all going to be about. You know, when, when Jesus walks on earth, there are many people who are surprised by all of his teachings. You know the one person that you never really see surprised? His mother. I mean, you, you see him and his mother interact very rarely, but you do see them interact at a wedding when the wine runs out. And what does Mary say? She says, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. She knows. She knows at this moment. I don't know why they wrote that song. She knows. She knows. Mary knows that God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She knows that God, through Christ, will bring down the mighty from their thrones and that Christ will exalt those of humble estate. She knows that this child will be the reason that the hungry will be filled with good things and the rich will be sent away empty. Mary understands that God's going to bring down the mighty and she understands that he's going to exalt the lowly. And what does that look like? If you're an upper middle class person, you could be categorized as mighty. I would say you could. We have so much more material wealth than generations before us. And Mary prophesies that he brings you down. Now, I don't necessarily think that this is socioeconomically, although he does call people to be radically generous and self-denying. But I think it's more... As a social, as a as a someone from an upper middle class, from an upper upper class, there's a temptation to look down on people from lower classes as if you're better than them, to say I'm better than those people. They don't have as much as me because I, they're not working as hard as me, because they're not as good as I am. They're not as smart as I am. But what the gospel does is it wrecks that because the minute you understand the gospel that you don't deserve the grace of God you understand immediately that you are on the level playing field with the poor. That there's nothing that makes you any better than anyone else. He brings down the mighty. They can't depend upon their wealth. And he lifts up the lowly. And it's just a, a fact. It's just true that 
when the gospel goes into a place, it is more well received among the poor, among the hungry, among those who have need because they can see their need for God. They don't have so many distractions. This is the ministry of Christ. She gets it. Let's end with this. Why does God do all this? Why does he do all this? Why is he he entering creation? Why is he bringing down the mighty and raising up the lowly? Why is he giving us such joy? Why is he giving her such joy? Is it because he looks at us and feels sorry for us? Thomas Godwin, a good one, um, an old writer, he puts it like this. He says, Christ's own joy comfort, and Christ's own joy and comfort, happiness and glory are increasing and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy, and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Let me give you a translation of that. God gives us joy because it gives him joy. When you think about God, do you think about him as some grumpy guy just barely tolerating you? Or do you think about him as someone who is infinitely happy and joyful? Because that's what he is. And Dane Ortland gives the illustration of a doctor who travels to a foreign nation to dispense in vaccines but, and medication. But the people of that nation are skeptical and they won't receive it. And it makes them so, ha- so sad. But as people start coming to receive their vaccines, receive their medication, he just rejoices more and more. The more he can give out, the more joy he has. And this is the image of our God. You cannot exhaust him because it just brings him joy for you to go to him. What are you hiding from him this morning? Know the freedom of Christ, which is he is not ashamed. Your photo isn't laid flat on his shelf. He's not ashamed. He wants you to draw near. It brings him joy as you come to the physician, the great physician, and receive the comfort that your soul demands. Our God loves to show mercy to the humble-hearted. Our God loves to show mercy to the humble-hearted. Say that with me. Our God loves to show mercy to the humble-hearted. Hebrews 12, Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, (laughs) endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Come to him this morning Increase his joy, seek his help, receive his joy. Because as you receive his joy, it increases his joy. The more he helps you, the more joy you experience, the more joy he experiences. Because Christ came for sinners. He's not going to hang his head in shame, but he wants to receive you in his arms. Here's the gospel. It's the good news. This is what we're here for. That God himself, the creator of the universe, would come as an incarnate child, be born of the Virgin Mary, would live a sinless life, 
would draw many followers, would say many conf- uh, confrontational, would say many controversial things. So much so to where the religious leaders would say, this guy has to be stopped. And they made a plan to murder him and to hang him on a cross as a form of execution. Even as they were nailing him to the cross, he shouts, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, as he hangs there, he says, it is finished. And at that moment, the weight of the sin of the whole world is placed on the child of Mary, on this God incarnate in human flesh, and it's paid for. Penalty gone. Your sin, my sin, our sin. And on the third day, this man would, raise, would be raised from the dead. He would walk around. Over 500 people saw him. They wrote down names. You can, you, you, at the time of this, you could have gone and interviewed people who had seen the risen Christ eating with them, talking with them, sharing and laughing with them. Then he ascended to heaven where he's still reigning and ruling and we wait for him to return. This is what we believe. This is what we're waiting for. This is what the season of Advent is all about. The return of our king coming again. And we will be here singing his praises until he returns. And before he died, he gave us a sacred meal and told us to do it until he returns, until he comes back. And so we participate in a communion meal each week. So church, let's stand, prepare our hearts to receive this meal. Pray with me. Father God, as we come, as we come to this meal, we pray that you will give us an ability to see any unrepentant sin in our hearts, anything that's keeping us, preventing us from being near to you, God, that we would repent of those things. God, we pray for anyone here who, who's receiving a word from you today, a word of encouragement for a brother or a sister. We pray that they will be able to speak those with confidence and that you would build us up as a result, that your body would be built up and encouraged today. And God, we, we just want to experience more of your power, your presence, and your joy this morning as we come to this table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.